All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to tell you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And I can tell you that I am becoming very, very excited about the junior gold stock segment now, much more than I have been in a long time. There are a couple of things that I'm uh, really looking forward to telling my subscribers about this week, and one of those happens to be a favorite pick of Chen Lin. Uh, Chen is a partner of mine, and you can um, uh, also avail yourself to Chen's newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chen has had a remarkable track record, being able to take uh, $5,400 of, of an IRA, uh, in about nine years, turning that into, or seven years, turning that into two and a half million dollars. So he has had a remarkable track record, and uh, uh, Chen is a person that I pay a lot of attention to. He is a partner of ours, uh, Jay, uh, the Taylor Hard Money Advisors, which is the publisher of my newsletter, also distributes Chen's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, I will be writing about one of Chen's favorites this weekend, I expect to be anyway, and telling my own subscribers. Uh, about that story. It's a 30 cent stock with, a, I think, a multi million ounce uh, near surface deposit in the Yukon. Anyway, uh, if you'd like to check out my newsletter, go to miningstocks.com. You can avail yourself to both my newsletter as well as Chen's, although with Chen, you do have to put your name on a waiting list. He'll be accepting new subscribers at the beginning of the next calendar quarter. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I want to thank, uh, and I would like to invite you to send along your questions and comments, and uh, we are getting some very interesting ones, a lot of questions and comments that are coming in, and here's one that I, I just can't help but pass along to you because it shows uh, on the antagonistic side, certainly not one that, uh, that, that necessarily makes me feel good, but I think it's very important to pass this along. This is from a listener named Randy. He says, hi, Mr. Taylor. I read, I read real history and have been dealing in coins since the 1970s. Every 20 years or so, I see the same old garbage preaching to the new generation. On the cover of Time, News, uh, Time or Newsweek back in 1968, it says, buy gold. Then it crashed. In 1980, buy gold. It crashed. Last few years, highly manipulated by Wall Street buyers, buy gold. Wall Street investors are getting tired of losing money on gold, so are getting tired. So are getting into profitable assets, unlike the ones you suggest we buy. You preach the economy will crash. Fine. Then what will your gold do? Can you buy a loaf of bread with a bar of gold? Ever watch the Twilight Zone on thieves stealing a truck? 
of gold, then hibernating for 100 years. They fought each other for the gold, then found out it was worthless. We no longer live in the dark ages, Mr. Taylor. Gold only has value when it can be exchanged for goods. If there is no currency to value gold, then it has no value. In my coin business, the preaching of gold and silver being a great investment destroys the coin collecting hobby. This destruction can end coin collecting for generations. When gold, silver, and oil come to their realistic levels, which he suggests is $900 for gold and silver at $10 and oil at $85 a barrel, your gold investments will destroy your business. Of course, I bet you divert your gold profits to other investments like stocks or real estate. Do I have that right? Care to comment? Well, yeah, Randy, I would like to comment. I could spend a lot of time discussing those issues, and uh, I don't uh, really blame you for feeling the way you do. After all, uh, we have had a fantastic bull market, and as I look at the screen today, we're seeing even new highs in the gold market, or in the bull, in the uh, equities market, excuse me. Uh, and yeah, for the last two or three years, at least, gold has been a horrible investment. Uh, it's been a horrible, gold shares have been a horrible investment. However, I would say that owning gold is not a horrible investment. Gold has gone from $35 to 1900 It's back to around 1200 right now, 1300 Okay, so we've had a bit of a pullback. But uh, gold has, has been a very great preserver of wealth uh, ever, since it went, ever since Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. Uh, I expect to uh, uh, perhaps pass along some of your comments, Randy, to one of our guests, Dan Oliver, today. But thank you for sending in your comments, and I would invite all the rest of you, if you have uh, issues with whatever you hear on this show, whether it's Daniel McAdams in the second hour, Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, uh, anything that you either are in favor of or against, I'd like to hear from you. I'd like to hear your views. Uh, because it's always good, I think, to keep an open mind about uh, the views that you take. Well, with respect to today's show, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking to Dan Oliver. Andy Hoffman will be with me in the second hour, as will Daniel McAdams and David Jensen. And also joining me in the first hour will be uh, Chris Krupe in just a couple of minutes after our first uh, commercial break. Gibson's Paradox. It says that if real interest rates decline, then the gold price will rise. But what will happen when the 30-year Treasury, U.S. Treasury bull market finally ends and rates begin to rise at a time when the debt-to-GDP levels are far higher than they were even in the extremes of the Great Depression in 1932? Will a rise in interest rates crush the gold price, as happened under Paul Volcker? At that time, the price of gold hit a high of $850, up from $35, not that well at the beginning of the decade. But when Volcker ushered in brutally high interest rates, gold began a long 20-year bear market. And I would argue that we had a sustainable, uh, real growth, uh, economic growth, which was uh, certainly not what we're seeing now. Could we be approaching something like that again uh, under Mr. Volcker? Or might a replay more akin to the 1970s, uh, only more so, be taking place first before we see any kind of a crush in the, uh, in the, uh, in the gold price as a result of higher interest rates and tight monetary policy? The question of what happens with rising interest rates may, I think, be the most important question that investors need to think about, not only investors but everybody, because it will have an impact when and if this interest rate environment changes around and the Fed actually does exit quantitative easing. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to Dan Oliver about this interest rate issue, the gold prices, uh, his view on the gold mining shares as well. 
actually, Daniel has written a piece recently stating that rising interest rates are gold positive. So we want to ask him about that. How can he arrive at that conclusion after we saw what happened with Paul Volcker's interest rate rise in 1980 when the gold price uh, really went down from 850, fell all the way into the 200s before it started up again into the bull market that we've recently, uh, that, that has taken place beginning in the early 2000s. Well, joining me in the second hour of today's show will be David Jensen, who has some very interesting things to tell us about a continuing move away from the fraudulent U.S. and British futures markets for gold and silver. Moscow is now setting up precious metals markets that are apparently quite active despite a 17% value-added tax. Interestingly enough, the Russians are paying considerably higher prices for their gold than Americans are, at least for the paper gold that they're supposed to be buying. How can it be, though, that foreigners are willing to pay so much more for their gold and silver than uh, is being quoted on the New York uh, and the London exchanges? We'll get David Jensen's opinion on that. Um, one current market aspect that has me very excited now, as I mentioned, is the junior gold share markets. And we're going to be talking to Chris Krupe uh, in just another minute or so. Chris is the president and CEO of Paramount Gold and Silver. It's traded on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol PZG. A dollar, a dollar nine uh, when I looked at it earlier today with 161 million shares. Outstanding. But this is a company that has two very substantial gold and silver projects, one in Mexico and one in Nevada. And uh, this is a company also that has a very good funding behind it, which is also a very important aspect with the junior mining companies uh, at this stage uh, of the the bull market. I do believe that uh, we are getting very close. Charles Nanner's date uh, late summer, uh, late uh, for a major bottoming of the gold markets. It seems about right to me in many ways. Uh, we will see. Time will tell. But Nanner has been as good as anybody that I follow for, for short-term uh, advice in terms of the markets. And uh, he certainly was right in calling the $1,900 high. Uh, he's been bearish all along since then, but now he's starting to turn bullish on a longer-term basis. So uh, we really are looking forward uh, to uh, to a turn in the gold markets for sure given the positions, certainly I am, given the positions I've taken in my newsletter. Uh, I also want to tell you that in the second hour, uh, we're going to be talking to Andy Hoffman. He'll be back to talk about what he calls history's largest Ponzi scheme, namely the United States dollar and why the wheels are inevitably going to fall off the wagon. And Also, we'll be talking to Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity for the latest uh, information on what is really taking place in the Middle East and in the Ukraine. So I hope that you'll join me in the second hour uh, to listen to Hoffman, uh, David Jensen, and Daniel McAdams. We do have to go to break now, but what we, when we come back, I'll be talking to Chris Krupe uh, of, the, uh, of Paramount Gold and Silver. So don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. 
The company's second project, Moreno Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Chris Krupe. He's the president and CEO of Paramount Gold and Silver Corp. Uh, Chris is a, a chartered accountant and a, a CPA, and he is the founder of Paramount Gold and Silver, and he's been the company's CEO since 2004, and he's been responsible for building that company, and he's done quite a nice job building a, a company, not one project, but two projects with multi-million ounce gold and silver uh, deposits on it, and they are making some really great progress. And, and as I noted in my preliminary uh, remarks, that I really am turning bullish on the gold sector now. I think we're just about ready to see uh, and to have some real good times in this sector again. I just have that feeling based on Nanner's work and a lot of other observations that many people have made. So it's really a pleasure to welcome Chris Krupe with me uh, today to talk about his rising, uh, the rising fortunes of Paramount Gold and Silver. Welcome, Chris. Good to have you with me again. Well, great. Uh, great to be back, Jay. And uh, lots of things have been going on, so um, we've got lots of things to talk about. Yeah, we have about uh, you know, 12, 15 minutes to do it, so let's get right on to it. Um, I should mention that uh, the symbol of your company uh, is traded on the, on the New York Stock Exchange and in Canada under the symbol PZG, $1.09, earlier today at least. Uh, you have, as I say, done a remarkable job. You've as- assembled a, a, not one but two multi-million ounce gold and silver properties, one in Mexico and one in Nevada. Uh, can you explain your business model to our listeners? For those who may not be uh, who may not be familiar with uh, Paramount, uh, tell them what you're planning to do. I mean, some companies explore, develop, and turn them into major deposits that major mining companies who have those skill sets and financial resources take buy them out and put them into production. Other companies like to take it the whole the whole way from uh, exploration to discovery to production and far and few between I might add not many companies are able to do that but what is the business model of Paramount Gold and Silver? Well, gee, we've got a very um, uh, interesting model. So what we have is we have a host of, of in-house um, geologists who are I, I call them um, mine finders and uh, we spend we spend money looking for prospects 
And when we find a prospect, we test it. And uh, presumably, if, if it's mineralized, we, we, you know, we attempt to put a, uh, a resource or a reserve around the, the, um, the ore. And as you said, we've done that twice now. And the model is interesting because we don't have to maintain a very large in-house uh, operating staff. We don't have to deal with um, making monthly payments to banks. We don't. You know, we have a very simple model where um, we fund the company. We have funded it in the past, and and those those funds are used to to build a resource in the ground. And we would look to partner the assets. I use that word loosely with those companies in the space that have those in-house teams that have invested in the engineers, the metallurgists, and all these wonderful people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is our model, and, it, and we're, we're, you know, we're strictly looking at gold and silver. And, and one more thing that's really important is that we really want to be in those districts, those, those regions that have low geopolitical risk. And that is going to be, I think, the next, in the next turn of the gold cycle, people are, are getting discriminatory, and they are going to pick the, the least riskiest jurisdictions to be operating. And I think that's some, some, a theme that you're going to see. I can't agree with you more on that, uh, Chris. I must say, uh, just this last few days, I started going through a pile of of, uh, of uh, company folders uh, that I have gotten picking up at, at various gold shows and the like that as I look for companies. And I, it was pretty easy for me, given the, la- the turn of events over the last couple of years. I think geo- geopolitical tensions are on the rise, the discrimination against, uh, you know, these, these uh, third world con- countries are looking for ways to try to, uh, to, to generate wealth. And so they're not so eager to have other con- countries and companies coming in and taking it. So I know that you are focus primarily on Mexico and Nevada right now. It lives in North America and Central America or Mexico. So you have now uh, just announced the other day a preliminary economic assessment on your San Miguel gold project that's down in Chihuahua State in Mexico. And I want to ask you mostly, I'd like to talk about that today, have you tell us about that. But before we get to that, you, uh, I'd like you to perhaps comment just briefly, tell us about your sleeper project in northwestern Nevada. Tell us a little bit about that. How many ounces of gold and silver and what sort of economics are we looking at there sure sure jay um the, so the sleeper project was a well it was a mine it was shut down um in the 90s and when gold just became an uneconomic to mine uh sub 300 dollars gold um we picked it up a few years ago we spent about 15 million re-establishing or redefining the resource that was left in the ground we now have it up to 5.5 million ounces of gold plus a serious silver credit, a significant silver credit, and that's in counting. So we've been working away at that number, and it's getting larger. We haven't published a report lately, but we do plan on it. Um, and we then took those numbers, Jay, and we did an economic model, much like we did in Mexico. We used a firm at a Denver, a very reputable American firm, and um, they believe that, we working with them, we could build conceptually a 17-year uh, mine producing 172,000 ounces of gold a year at a cost of a little under 800 bucks an ounce. Initial capex would be uh, in the sort of 350 million range. So this is a big, large, open pit. You see them all over the state of Nevada. It's probably one of the most common types of mine in the United States. Um, it's basically a bulk tonnage type operation where you're moving a lot of rock. And the wonderful thing is, is that when the gold market turns, and we all know it will, it's just a matter of when, the leverage on this project will be incredible. Um, and I think that's the key that people have to really, uh, if people focus on, is that 
where is the real value in these things? Well, the value is in the ground, and when, when the price goes, you get an, an, an exponential return on that value in the ground. And so I just leave it at that for the moment, but we're quite excited about the future of that project. It was a mine once before. It will be a mine once again. You can get there on a paved road. You've got, we've got a power station on the site. We've got, um, we've got the water. We own the water rights in the whole district. So you have all the ingredients, especially the fact that's in the United States in the best mining jurisdiction in the world in Nevada. Right. And uh, in effect, what you've got is a call option on that, Chris. You know, if you're break-even right now, $1,200, $1,300 gold or whatever, uh, actually, I think you're talking about an $800 cash cost. Then, uh, well, once you start to get over that break-even point, obviously, the price of gold goes up, but your costs don't go up nearly as fast. And so your profits rise dramatically. And, and so that's the leverage factor you're talking about. But now let's talk about your San Miguel project, which is a, a, more of a silver and gold project, I believe. Is a, how's the mix on that? You know, economically, it's almost a 50-50 split, which is a little unusual for Mexico. You typically see these are strong silver systems, but this is a very nice system down there we have. Okay, so let's, uh, let's talk about your, uh, your latest PEA that you just put out now. Uh, on San Miguel. Tell us about, uh, tell us, talk about the economics of that project. Sure, sure. So, Jay, what we did is we took all of the drilling we've done, uh, 100,000 meters, uh, with the resource of about 1.7 million ounces of gold and, you know, 120 million ounces of silver, and we said to ourselves, what's it worth and how can we build it? So, we spent a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, we would start the project with, an op- with a large open pit, uh, and so these would be several deposits. So we would start with a pit. Uh, we would uh, build a leach pad. We would leach the material, for, uh, and that would only take us about six months to get into production. Uh, initially, the capex on the project is extremely low at $69 million. Nobody, It's very hard to find a project under $100 million these days. Oh, but I agree. That's, yeah. It's financeable in this market. Um, and once that project gets rolling, then we, then we start moving towards the underground development, which is a little more complicated, but the grades are much higher. And the project itself, the mine, the whole project will run for 17 years, which is a reasonable uh, length of time and to justify a mine. Um, we'll get about 55,000 ounces of gold plus about 3 million ounces of silver on average, which puts us as, a, as maybe a... I would say a small mid-tier producer or maybe a large small producer, whatever the case may be. But the most, the beautiful thing is, is that our costs are fairly low, comparatively speaking. And, and you know, you're talking in the fi- high 500s an ounce for cash costs and probably all in somewhere between eight, maybe eight and nine hundred. So, you know, we have some margin here at the current gold price of, uh, in the 1300 range down to, even down to the 900 range where the project will still get off the ground and uh, still make money. And so we're quite excited about it. Um, we're now moving uh, to pre-feasibility, and we can talk a little bit about that after the next step. So we're, we're really moving forward with this thing. Okay, so you're going to do a pre-feasibility study. Is that starting immediately, and what might go into that, Chris? It is, actually. Um, we, we put together a budget, which we published in our uh, PEA, and it's $6.5 million is the budget to get the pre-feasibility done. It'll take the better part of a year. We've ordered up four drill rigs that are going to be on site, uh, if not this week, right after Labor Day. And, um, you know, one of the things that people have to also remember is that the best time to be doing exploration, if you're an exploration company, is in the worst times. Yeah. Because, because I can get four drill rigs now for the price of two. I mean, uh-huh. if, you could even, if you could even got drill rigs 
in 06, 07. Right. It was months. And now we have bidding wars to supply them. Our, you can get labor, professional labor rate, rates, rates are down. Mm-hmm. The cost of oil is, is not really that high right now either, and that's a major input. Um, so we're, we're excited. We're funded. We're excited to get this off the next step. We'll have a, the drill program will run until the end of December. It'll be a combination of infill drilling, expansion drilling, and exploration drilling all with core rigs, the best type of drilling you can do. So we're going to have a steady uh, set of uh, news flow for the next four months and leading up until the, the pre-fees where we're going to bring this up to a, a you know, reserve, uh, reserve grade ore. Now, um, have you had some interest from major mining companies? I know you can't really talk about names, but it, ha- have there been some companies that have expressed some interest in either of these two properties? Oh, absolutely. Um, given the location particularly in Mexico where, you know, where we have the, most of the major mining operations exist, such as uh, uh, the Pan American Silver, Coeur d'Alene Mines, Gold Corp, Agnico Eagle, um, Carlos Slim is in the district now. So all of these people are in this district, and, 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 and I can assure you that I've made sure that not only those people, but other people that need to know about it have, or know about it and have or seen it, um, and as you know, these things take a long time. You can't, it's not like selling um, a, a widget. You, you need to understand it. It's a scientific exercise, and then you have to bring engineers in. It takes a long time to understand these deposits. Um, so, so, yes, we, we, we have, you know, the, the ultimate goal is to find a partner. So, you've yeah. you got a date before it, you can get married, right, Jay? Yeah, and, and you said uh, you define the word partner loosely. Would you care to elaborate? Well, you know, I think there's three... Three ways you can go about this type of exercise. You can, you can find someone that you're comfortable working with, but ask them to bring their labor to the table and their capital, share the pie, and, and we continue as an exploration company, and we let the big brother run the show, and we split the profits. That's one that's typically done under a joint venture, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, those, those, in theory, are, are very, um, they're very good uh, ways of doing business, but they're sometimes challenging and complex. Sure. Um, then there's sort of the in-between where sometimes you look to sell your asset on a one-off basis to somebody who, again, might be able to do it on their own and do it in-house. And thirdly, um, I think the ultimate goal of, of an exploration company is to sell the company to um, a larger player and, you know, in a sort of a M&A type stock transaction. And that's, I think if you, ask, if you put 10, of, 10 guys like me in a room, I think 9 out of 10 of us would say that's the best thing for the shareholders from a risk return perspective. Mm-hmm. You might have 1 out of 10 who really wants to build it, and, and sometimes they can. But yeah. very, these things are very difficult to build unless you have the skilled and, and most importantly, experienced people in, in-house. Oh, that's for sure. And one of the things that I makes me pleased as a shareholder of your company, Chris, is that you named a lot of different uh, possible uh, companies that might be interested in a project like this. And I would think also the location and also the low capex has got to be major pluses for this, and the economics uh, should uh, should work out very well. But it seems to me that if you have a number of different prospects, prospective buyers, it's better than having just one. So uh, that that also is, uh, I think, something that that is very positive I would think in your in your case although as you say it takes time these guys have to study your project learn to know it they have to sign confidentiality agreements I'm sure and, uh, and start to to pick up on on uh, the uh, intelligence that you've built as you explored and developed uh, your San Miguel how are how are you funded right now 
we're, we've got about uh, seven million right now, and and we are, we we have no debt, we have no obligations, we owe nobody anything. <laughs> so we are uh, we're in the ideal situation. I would not want to be a small producer in this market, wondering if the gold price drops five dollars if I'm at a business tomorrow. Yeah, well, we will be true. in business tomorrow. We have a deep pocketed shareholder who's been with us, and that's very important. And when the times are rough, as you know, absolutely. And and we can take our cash burn down to literally zero if we if we so choose. And so. We're ramping up the, the drilling because we think that an exploration company should be in the business of exploration, uh, shouldn't be sitting on their cash balances, and I think that I think we're timing. We've got a good inkling, like you do, that things are going to happen in this in the sector. I really feel that's the case. I, I maybe it's wishful thinking, but no, I think it's there's more reasons to believe that it is because of uh, many different issues that we talk about on this show. Uh, one more thing before I let you go: uh, management skin in the game. Does management own shares, and Absolutely. to what extent? Absolutely. Uh, you know, at one time I was the biggest shareholder. Unfortunately, these things change as you you have to sell yeah. shares, and you know. But um, I have uh, I have four million shares. I've bought over four hundred thousand in the last two and a half years, and that's all documented on um, uh, the SEC filing system. I'm one of the few guys that actually are putting their money where their mouth is. Albert Friedberg, our biggest shareholder, has uh, 25 million shares. A number of other people uh, on the board and associated with Albert and myself who work with the company have you know, s- several million, if not tens of millions. So we've got a good, tight group of people here. And they've been with us. We've all been together for a long time, and, and uh, that's the key also is to have some long, long-term thinking. Absolutely, it is. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. We're out of time. I want to thank you for sharing the story again with our listeners. It is an exciting story. I am a shareholder. It is also a company that is recommended in my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, uh, Chris, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the near future to, for an update. Thank you, Jay. Folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but when we come back, Daniel Oliver will be with us. And Dan, uh, I believe, is very, very uh, positive on the gold markets now. We'll ask him about that. Also, ask him about how does gold fare in a rising interest rate environment. That's the topic uh, we want to talk to Dan about. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dan Oliver. He is the director of the Committee for Monetary Research and Education. That's uh, CMRE for short. It's a uh, twice-a-year dinner that's put on in New York with a lot of excellent uh, speakers, mostly free market oriented speakers that come and talk there, and Dan heads that up, but he uh, also is very much involved uh, in investing in the uh, in various things but I think mostly in gold mining shares and gold in the gold sector uh on behalf of Mermican Capital uh and I think that's probably what occupies most of his time but he is also a, uh I think a free market thinker that I really appreciate I really enjoy reading his missives as they come through and uh we want to talk to him uh, today about some of those ideas that he's recently uh, passed along to his uh, to his investors and to his readers. Thank you very much, Daniel, for coming on with me today. Well, thanks, Jay. Always appreciate talking to you. Always fun to talk to you and uh, and to hear and to read what you have to say. Uh, you know, in a in a missive that you recently wrote, you noted that the Keynesians, uh, sort of the Keynesian religion, I would call it. They these guys have sort of taught, uh, really have sort of come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter how much debt is piled on in the economy it's not going to hurt us how have they arrived at that view well it you know the keynesians look at the economy from an accounting point of view and and, and they point out something which is probably correct from an accounting perspective which is that uh, every debt owed is, is a credit that's expected so if, if a owes a million dollars to b uh, then on an aggregate basis all that means is, is that one owes the other money and, and the way they describe it is that on a societal basis when a pays that money to b it's just like changing money from the right hand to the left hand and therefore it makes no 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 difference debt levels make no difference and of course the the problem with this analysis is that if someone lends money to someone else and expects to get paid back, he runs around and behaves as if that money is there due to him and going to come back. Uh, meanwhile, even if it's been lost, he doesn't know that yet. And, and, and the analogy I think that makes sense is the, is the Madoff investors. Right? Madoff, maybe they invested a million dollars at Madoff, and they get statements saying that they're worth $10 million. And so they adjust their lives uh, so as to behave as if they're 10 times richer. And then one day they discover that actually uh, the money is all gone, or I think in Madoff's case, maybe them got some of their money back. In other words, they got their million dollars back, but the problem was they had been spending for the previous mm-hmm. 10 years as if they had 10. And, and, and the realization that they only ever had the one million, they've actually spent their capital, is what causes depressions. People wake up one day and they realize, wait a second, all this debt we were expecting to get back from the people we lent money to uh, isn't really there. You know, I, as an amusing anecdote, I was at an uh, investor conference in at Bloomberg uh, a few weeks ago, and, and there was a gal there uh, uh, bragging about the fact that her fund had $20 billion of credit. 
uh, to a potential investor, and I, and, I, and I said, oh, you mean people owe you $20 billion, you really think they're going to pay you? Uh, and, and the smile sort of vanished from her face, and the investor <laughs> laughed as if he'd never considered this before. And of course, yeah. all credit is is the flip side of debt. And so, and, and so the, the problem the Keynesians have is that, yes, in an accounting perspective, they're correct, but from a from a, a psychological perspective, uh, they're, they're very incorrect, and we see that when societies accumulate too much debt, uh, uh, resources get misallocated. Eventually, uh, people realize that they're not getting paid back, and, and you get a depression. Sounds like uh, what you described as a Ponzi scheme, which uh, I guess a lot of people have, uh, have called the Madoff scandal. Uh, is this a model, though, for the bigger economy? Do you see this as uh, basically what's going on on a much larger scale even than Madoff? Well, of course. And, and one of the things that uh, I think that people uh, don't understand really very well at all is how markets go up. You know, people, when markets crash, everyone wants to know where did the money go? Everyone was selling stocks <laughs> and where, where did the money go, right? And they never ask themselves on the way up, where's the money coming from? Yeah. And, and, and the answer is that, you know, when, when you own a stock, you put up cash and you buy the stock, any broker is willing to lend you money against that stock because you have ready collateral. If the, if the market starts going down, they can instantly take the collateral, sell it, and repay the loan. So, so the bank system is very willing to lend you money against it. And where does that money come from? In, in a fully reserve system, that money they lend you would have to come from someone else, from someone else's savings. In a fractional reserve system, which is what we have, uh, the money doesn't come from anywhere. The, the banks literally create that credit money from nothing. And so as the market goes higher and higher, people can borrow more and more money against uh, their stocks. However much they've borrowed, if it goes higher, they get more credit and they can borrow more against that collateral. And so that, that's why markets tend to go up uh, uh, for long periods of time because it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle where the higher they go, the more money there is on the sidelines to power it higher. But of course, the reverse also happens. When markets start going down, Margin costs are going out. People have to sell. They pay back the money. The money doesn't go anywhere because it didn't come from anywhere. It, it, <laughs> it, it is destroyed, and the money on the sidelines disappears. And so, you know, after every crash, uh, society always looks around. They're trying to figure out a scapegoat. Who got all the money? And they, and they discover a couple of short sellers got rich, and they say, well, they have it. And, of course, there are always short sellers, and they always do make a little bit of money. But it's a fraction, a tiny fraction of the money actually in the market that literally vanishes uh, when you go into reverse. And, again, th- th- this is another reason why credit cycles are so disruptive because when you have the banks printing this credit, again, on, a, on an accounting basis, it may still be true that all the money borrowed is money owed. But it, what it does is it goes into stocks. Uh, people feel rich. They stop working because they don't need to work because they have so much money. Uh, they buy fancy uh, houses they can afford, cars they can afford, all those things. And, and that can maintain for a certain period of time. But once the uh, illusion melts and it turns out that they didn't have that money actually and they left the workforce and now they have less money than I thought they had and they have to go back to work doing something they don't like and so and so that, that those are the disruptive things that debt levels cause that Keynesians don't see but if you read any amount of economic history it is very apparent that this is how the system works does it matter Dan that uh, you know the United States is a debtor nation a major debtor nation we were a creditor nation up until Nixon I guess and um, so this whole argument that the Keynesians make, uh, if everybody in the United States owed it to everybody in the United States, would that be less problematic than, uh, than the United States owing so much money to China and Japan and other countries? 
Well, you know, that, that's an excellent point because usually in, in, in business schools, at least in the, the one I went to and, and, and talking to other people, that's how the textbooks are written. Yes, it's always presented as an indigenous thing, as, as this debt is owed amongst ourselves. But as you point out, that uh, much of the debt is actually owed to other people, to, to, uh, to the Chinese especially. And, and, and the way that usually plays out, of course, is that one day uh, the, the accounts don't balance and the U.S. can't pay its debts. And then China stops sending us goods. And then what happens is that prices go up. And the, the, the situation the United States has with China is actually very similar to the situation that the U.S. had with Europe back in the 20s. In the other direction, as you point out, the U.S. used to be mm-hmm. the, most, the biggest creditor nation. And the way that worked out was uh, following World War I, much of Europe's manufacturing capacity had been destroyed. In the U.S., came through unscathed because the war wasn't here. So we had all these factories making all these goods, and, and the Europeans couldn't afford to buy them because they owed us all this money in the war debts that they borrowed from us. So the the the, you know, the business world uh, started sending goods to Europe on credit. So not only did the Europeans on a sovereign basis owe us money for the war debt, but on a private basis they owed us tremendous amounts of money too from all the goods we were sending them. And, and the U.S. economy developed – uh, to export all these things. We built t- lots of factories. We, we developed lots of commodities to, to do this. And then one day, not in 1929, that was the stock market bubble. In 1931, when the bond market bubble broke, which meant the market realized that the Europeans were never going to pay us uh, what happened f- for the goods we had already shipped them, uh, it turned out that we had massively overexpended capacity beyond what the economy could uh, uh, sustain. And so for the next 10 years, during the Great Depression, uh, we had to rationalize all of that excess capacity, and we got lots of deflation. Of course, in Europe, they, they no longer got U.S. goods, and so they had lots of inflation. And, and I think the same thing is going to happen between uh, U.S. and China, but just playing different roles where the Chinese now have massive overcapacity to ship us things that we simply can't afford, that we're not paying them for. We're giving them IOUs, and one day the bond market will revolt, and, and the Chinese will realize that they're not going to get paid for the things that they have already shipped us, and, and that their economy is, is very much out of whack. So do you think that as a debtor nation then that uh, what will make the Chinese goods and, uh, so uh, unaffordable for us here in America will be a dollar that, that crashes or that goes down substantially in value? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, think, I think what happens is that um, the, the, the U.S. dollar, uh, as, as you know very well and probably most of your listeners do too, was originally a measure of silver. Uh, the, the Currency Act of 1792 defined the dollar as a certain number of grains of, of silver. And, and over time, that definition changed to where now, if, if you ask someone what is a dollar, they really don't have any idea. But the, the dollar actually does have a specific identity, and that is it is a unit of the liability of the Federal Reserve. The, the Federal Reserve is a bank. It has assets and liabilities. Its liability is the dollar, and its assets now are very long-term treasury bonds and also mortgage-backed securities. And the way a treasury bond is priced is it's priced off the interest rate. When interest rates go up, uh, bonds lose value, and the longer term a bond is, the, the, the more uh, it loses value. So in, in my view, when rates finally go up, uh, what's going to happen is that the, the bonds on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet are going to lose uh, value rapidly, which means this liability has to lo- lose value too, and that, that being the dollar. And so you'll see 
contrary to what many in Wall Street think, you'll see nominal interest rates uh, going up at the same time that the dollar is going down. Uh, and, and, of course, gold will be going up, too, because the dollar will be going down. And, and, and that will set the stage for uh, other imports and other things that people buy becoming much expensive. And, of course, you already see this in, in, a, in a little bit in the food prices that are, that are going up uh, quite substantially. Grain prices have backed off a bit because uh, the weather's been so good. But if you look at the longer-term uh, supply chain of food, which involve the core proteins, uh, beef, uh, chicken, uh, pork, those eggs, those sorts of things, uh, the, the prices there are roaring ahead, I think, at an 8% rate for the past 12 months. And, mm-hmm. and that puts a real squeeze on, uh, on consumers uh, and is due to dollar weakness that, in my view, uh, is already starting to accelerate and will continue to do so. So we saw, uh, certainly, I, I remember the 1970s very clearly. I was a young man during those days, but I remember uh, interest rates were rising along with gold. Gold was rising and started rising very rapidly, even along with nominal interest rates, but real interest rates were falling because the cost of all the things you had to buy were, uh, you, you know, was, was going up uh, dramatically. So is that sort of what your scenario, sort of a, a stagflation type of a scenario? Yeah, that, that's exactly right, and, and, and you put your finger on it. Again, most Wall Street analysts write that when interest rates go up, gold will go down because gold likes negative interest rates. And so if interest rates are higher, then obviously you expect it to go down. And in and, and the static analysis, of course, is true, but, but the economy is not a static thing. It's a dynamic system. And if you look back at the data as opposed to wishful thinking, when – uh, nominal rates go up, real rates tend to go down. And, and the reason is just what I've described, that, that the losses in the purchasing power of the dollar when rates go up because of the Fed Reserve's balance sheet uh, outweigh the extra income you get from the nominal dollars. And that, that's what creates negative interest rates. And, and that's why precisely, as you say, if you look back in the 70s, it was during the time of rising interest rates that gold had its best performance. So I think that's what's, uh, what's in front of us. And, and uh, I, I would add, Jay, yeah. also that the yeah. nature, the character of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet in the 70s was very different. The Federal Reserve held exclusively uh, government uh, bonds, treasuries, mm-hmm. and the average duration was around two years, two to three years. So they were relatively insensitive to interest rates, and yet rates went from, what, 6% in 1977 to 21%? Right. Uh, in, in that order, and that was when gold ran from hundred dollars to eight seventy five well now the uh, average maturity of the fed's balance sheet isn 't two or three years it 's over twelve years, and so it 's that much more sensitive to interest rates and to losses and, and that 's why I think when rates finally start going up uh, the, uh, the the dollar is going to have uh, major major problems, and I expect that the uh, gold will perform better uh, in this cycle than it did in the seventies because the fed 's balance sheet is that much more impaired. Well, we have a debt-to-GDP level now that is far greater than any time in at least since the Civil War. I don't know before then, but uh, I think it was something like the debt-to-GDP in 1932 or thereabouts was something like 230% of GDP. And now, uh, using the government's numbers, it's it has hit 360% or something like that. It's come off a little bit, perhaps. But it is extremely high, so any – I mean – the 1970s doesn't compare with what we have now. The 1930s didn't even compare. So, you know, Bob Hoy, I think you know Bob Hoy, is, is talks about uh, this being the sixth major credit, con- uh, the, the sixth major bubble, or uh, let's say debt bubble or uh, uh, credit bubble, however you want to term it. Uh, 
that we've had in history, and his view is that uh, that whenever you know that, that ultimately these bubbles have to burst, and you have a deleveraging, whether it's I guess I guess Bob it leans on the deflation side of things, but I I think that history bears it out that ultimately the debt the leverage has to come down. I suppose it could come down through inflation, but if interest rates start to rise, nominal or uh, real, but it's even nominal, I would argue that. Uh, this economy is in a heap of trouble given the huge amount of debt that we have. Would that not then lead to uh, a possible deflation of a lot of different assets, perhaps financial assets, if not the tangibles? Well, I, it's, it's, it's all good points you raised. The, the debt-to-GDP ratio, I think, was up around 400%, and then the U.S. government defined what GDP was to include more things. Okay. And then, of course, as GDP went up, <laughs> and its debt is the same, the ratio went down. So, yes, now, now officially it's around 350%, but that doesn't include uh, off-balance sheet liabilities of the, of the government, for example. And uh, I don't think it includes the shadow bank system either. So the real numbers are probably a magnitude of, of that amount. And so, wow. uh, y- yes, to your point, when, when rates go up, uh, uh, very bad things will happen because it means people won't be able to maintain their debts. And, and this is a critical difference, again, between now and the 70s, as you point out, because in the 70s, that ratio officially was 150%. So when Volcker raised rates from 6% to 21%, there wasn't that much debt in society. Uh, 150% is actually, as for societal basis, not just the government, but everyone's in society. Mm-hmm. It's a very low level. And so, and so the country was able to uh, withstand that shock therapy. Uh, today, if rates went to 21%, there's no possible way people could uh, pay their debts. And so... And so everyone would would default, and I, I I do know Bob, and I respect him enormously, and he does lend uh, on the deflationary side of, of things because he thinks that once the margin calls come out, mm-hmm. as I described earlier, uh, there's nothing the Federal Reserve can do. Uh, one default leads to the next, and the Fed can make credit available, but if no one borrows the money, then 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 uh, then you can't get a reflation. And I, I'm not sure I agree with that in in the sense that. Um, one of my own errors in, in analyzing uh, the economy was uh, you look back through history, and normally when you see cascading defaults begin, uh, there is nowhere to stop them uh, because A defaults to B, and then B doesn't have money, yep. E defaults to C, and so on. Uh, but, but with the Federal Reserve, they, they really tore up the rule book, and they went out in 2008 and nine and simply bid up the prices of the critical uh, assets, and they guaranteed all of the institutions from failure. I think Bloomberg calculated the total guarantees uh, we're around $18 trillion, I mean, mind-boggling numbers. And, and, and what they did was it forced the nominal prices of these assets higher, and that disconnected the phone line to Mr. Margin. And, and that is how the world shifted from this uh, cascading collapse back into a new credit boom, which, of course, we're in now. Uh, and, and if you look at the, uh, I think the Bank of International Settlements, re- International Settlements uh, recently had a report that said that the total uh, uh, credit levels, debt levels, uh, now versus 2007, the peak of the last credit cycle, is 40% higher. So, so yes, they defeated the cascading default uh, collapse, but uh, at the expense of making a much worse uh, bubble and, and a much more rickety capital structure than we had before. So the question is, what happens in the next crisis? And again, my view is that uh, the Fed's balance sheet and other central banks, their balance sheets are much more impaired uh, than they were uh, last time. And so I I question whether when the next crisis happens, and and undoubtedly the Fed will offer all sorts of guarantees again, but even without that, will capital 
run to the dollar as a safe haven. One of the things that, that Bob says is that in a, in a crisis, in a crash, capital goes to the most liquid item, and I agree with that. And, mm-hmm. and for me, the most liquid item is gold. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think that's where capital is going to go. And what's interesting is if, if you follow the gold, the, the markets closely, the broader markets and the gold markets, which I do, uh, the gold and the broader markets are behaving in an anti-correlated fashion, almost tick for tick. If you watch it during the day wh- when the market has a leap up, gold is under pressure and then, and then vice versa. So I think gold is just kind of hanging out, waiting for the current credit cycle to roll over. And, and uh, you know, it's, very, it's hard to know when you're in a – on a parabola, just how high it's going to go when you're in a bubble, how high will it go? But I, I think in terms of time, we must be near the end, and the reasons are that uh, the, the amount of credit that, that's been pushed in the system is so high that the Fed is getting nervous, and they're starting to pull it back. That's what tapering is all about. And if you look at what Bernanke did in 2005, he was also nervous about the credit cycle. He pulled back, and, and that's what precipitated the 2008 crisis. And in fact, uh, the tapering's been gone for almost a year now. So we're almost a year into the tightening cycle because t- tapering is tightening. And, uh, and there's, I, I don't think there's any way that the, this massive hyper credit cycle we're, we're in can continue uh, without the Federal Reserve stoking it. And so when it rolls over, I think that's when we'll see uh, the, the next larger crisis hit. And I suspect the larger crisis means that the crisis goes beyond uh, national currencies and, and, and th- that, that becomes the focus of the crisis and gold comes into its own as the uh, uh, place to preserve your capital. We'll have a currency reset of some sort, perhaps. Oh, I, I think undoubtedly. And, and if you read the intelligentsia, um, they're, they're all talking about these issues, the Council for Relations, mm-hmm. the BIS, the, the IMF. The, you know, all the academics are all writing about the, the, the next stage of currencies beyond the dollar, beyond Bretton Woods, and all those sorts of things. And, and, and on some sense, you know, academics like write lots of things, and, and, and it's not always related to the real world. But policymakers are very influenced by these academics. You know, as, as you know, big academia and big government and big banks and big business are all connected with each other. Yeah. And, and so the, 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 lots of these ideas are uh, perhaps raised now in a context where it's, it sort of seems impossible. It has no application. But then in a crisis, that becomes the blueprint for what they want to do. And, and you see this very clearly in, in, in Bernanke's career. He wrote, he wrote all those papers about how to deal with inflation, how to deal with crashes you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s when that was right. the last thing in anyone's mind. And, and yet mm-hmm. there, there it was. And so <laughs> he, he was, you know, quote, unquote, the, the dream team, right? And, 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 and he was the man. I mean, Time Magazine lauded this guy. It was so lucky that this guy was right yeah. in the right place at the right time in 2008. Well, but they've been preparing for for this for years because they knew about the, the flaws in the system. And, and so I think that you know, anyone who has any, uh, I think, intelligence and, and, and perspective on uh, the, the, the markets and, and the currencies knows that things are very, very wrong. And the time to think about what to do in a crisis is before it happens so that once it happens, th- these guys, these one-world government people can simply have a fait accompli and, and, and you know, impose whatever reforms they've pre-designed. All right, we're we're just about out of time. We've got a couple of minutes left, and I I have to ask you about gold shares. I know that you like the gold shares. Could you tell our listeners what kind of gold mining companies uh, are you preferring these days? Sure. I mean, gold mining companies come in lots of different shapes and sizes. I think there are thousands of listed companies. And and my analysis of the gold shares in general is that what a gold mine really is is a spread trade between. Uh, industrial commodities, which is the input cost, and gold, which is the output cost. And when you have credit levels rising, 
uh, gold tends to underperform commodities, so uh, margins get squished, and it's not a happy place to be, as everyone knows uh, for the last three years that's what's been happening. When credit levels fall, and they tend to fall very quickly, uh, that's when margins really blow out. And so you're playing that spread, and, and, and credit levels don't really care about uh, uh, the, the nominal prices. In other words, credit can right. disappear in an inflationary basis or sometimes it disappears in a, in a deflationary basis. But either way, the, the spread between commodities and, and gold blows out and you get added margins. So that's your, that's your safest bet. If you want to take more risk, uh, of course, uh, miners that have lots of debt denominated in dollars very much do care about which outcome that is. Because right. if you have deflation and your margins get higher but you've got tons sure. of debt, you might not bid anyway. So so, so in those circumstances, you, you want to look for inflation. And, and so I, I, I think that those companies offer a, a, a more of a boost in the inflationary out, outcome, which is what I expect. Uh, and, sure. and then the last point would be that companies in production don't need to raise capital. They have cash flow. And I right. think that in a crisis, capital becomes very, very scarce. And so looking at exploration companies, they become very, very hard to raise capital because the potential cash flows are so far in the future that the discount rates get so high that they can't ever finance it no matter how much gold they have. So I think when you're investing for a crisis, you want companies that actually have current cash flow or, or have already raised the capital to build a mine. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We've got to get you back to talk more uh, about that topic for sure. Uh, but we are out of time. So thank you very much, Daniel, for being with us. And I look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. Thanks for well, folks, uh, folks, that's all the time we have for the first hour of today's show. But there is more to come at jtaylormedia.com. Go there immediately, uh, and we're going to be talking to Andy Hoffman, David Jensen, and Daniel McAdams. Next week, Brent Cook and Harvard professor Naomi Ariskus, global warming fame, will be with me. Also, Daniel McAdams, David Jensen as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 